So our scripture today comes from the book of Psalms, and I'm going to be in Psalm 25, beginning at verse 4 and through 7. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. A few weeks ago, we started a new message series called When the Saints. Um, The saints are one of those great gifts the Catholic Church gave to us. Um, The the saints are those whose lives um, as Christians was exemplary. It was worth following. And so I wanted to take some time to look at a few of our saints, um, but most especially, what did those saints pray when they prayed? And so two weeks ago, we talked about St. Francis and one of his prayers, Last week, Pastor Greg talked about St. Patrick and one of his prayers. Now, those are two saints you're probably familiar with. Today, we're going to talk about St. Anselm. And the only reason you know anything about St. Anselm is there is a Catholic parish on Mason Road with an odd-shaped building. That might be the only way you know St. Anselm. Maybe you know more about him than that. Um, But we're going to talk about St. Anselm's prayer. So, I I would confess that I do my best thinking with other people's brains. And I'm not kidding. Kidding, not kidding, right? We learn from others. We grow from from what others teach us. Even as we get older, we we learn from others. Uh, Sometimes we learn from um, the process of thought that brings a result, and we learn from that result. Sometimes it's the process of thought and not the result of it that we learn from. We've all heard of the scientific method, right? It's okay to shake your head yes in church. We won't think that you're given a witness. Okay, thank you for a few of you shaking your head. We've, we've heard of the scientific method, and the, and the scientific method, though, um, is based on a philosophy that began in about 500, 400 um, B.C. and evolved over time. And throughout these centuries, people added to it and added to our pursuit of knowledge, our pursuit of understanding. And over that time, it evolved until 1910, the word scientific method is coined, the phrase is coined in a book by a guy by the name of John Dewey, same guy that gave us the Dewey Decimal System that we use in libraries that none of us understands not even librarians. I don't know, where's my wife? She's one, so she could probably comment on that. <laughs> um, so, um, but, but that whole sort of constructing it in its final form that is still used today, a century later, was John Dewey taking what had happened over 2,500 years before him. The process of thought evolved. It may be uncomfortable for you to hear me say this, but the process of thought for Christians has evolved over 2,000 years. 
To fully appreciate, for instance, the prayer of St. Anselm, we have to understand that the thought process that went into his prayer is significant to the prayer itself. And then through that, we're going to learn the great debt that we get from St. Anselm because of what he prayed and what he taught. You're going to be surprised to learn that there are things that we talk about today as Christians that really weren't constructed in the way that it's presented until Anselm. But also others built upon that. So, Anselm, um, born in Italy in the 1000s, his, his most important ministry comes right at the turn of the century from 1000 to 1100. Anselm, uh, um, dad wanted him to be a lawyer. He goes off and becomes a preacher, a pastor, a monk, actually, in his day. Anselm becomes eventually appointed by the bishop, uh, by the pope, to be Bishop of Canterbury. So here's an Italian guy in Britannia. That's what it was called in the 1100s. An Italian guy in Britannia, um, Bishop of Canterbury. His greatest um, um, social battles, political battles, were with two different kings. He was exiled twice under those kings. Two different kings who thought that they should have the authority because, hey, they're king of all the land. They should have the authority to decide who the bishops are. Anselm said, no, that belongs to the pope. One of those kings was King Henry I. You might remember it's King Henry VIII who had that same argument in the 1500s. And, and part of that argument, that he wanted a divorce and the pope wouldn't grant it. But, but those things caused Henry VIII to start his own church. Say, okay, you think I don't have authority? Watch this. Anselm is having the same argument 400 years before with the kings of that day. Anselm is also probably one of the most intelligent men of his era. He's a deep thinker in his theology. And his theology heavily impacts, and I said this already, heavily impacts the way we think about God and how we think about how God is made known in Jesus Christ heavily impacts us today. There is a history of Christian thought. How do we know what we know about God? And how do we know what we know about Jesus Christ and other topics that have evolved over the years? Technically, theology is a subset of philosophy. It's a philosophy about God or gods or many gods or some other God, but it's a philosophy, how you talk about God. That's theology. In our case, our theology is the theology of a God made known to us in Jesus Christ. But how we speak of our God, it might surprise you to learn, is different today than it was a thousand years ago at Anselm's time and a thousand years before that at the time of the apostles. Instead of saying they thought the same, they borrowed and constructed differently as time went on. So you'll find in Anselm's prayer, for instance, that you have that insert in your bulletin, you'll find in his prayer a heavily, heavy reliance on the book of Psalms, especially the psalm I just read. 
You'll also find that in his theology, a heavy reliance on New Testament. But then again, also on St. Augustine, who's in the 300s, and others that followed him. As, as we talk about this then, Anselm himself developed three different ideas that later theologians find to be important and that we actually use today. The first one's a little bit of a stretch for us, but it really is important to all of theology, and that is his thoughts on the existence of God. Does God exist? Is there a God? How do we know God exists? And, and to get to what he says, he borrows from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Socrates was a philosopher who actually written, wrote nothing down. We only know about Socrates because his student, Plato, talks about him. And, and Plato's student was Aristotle. And to put this in the, the framework of all of, of, of human history, Aristotle's student was Alexander the Great. So that's kind of how that all falls together. Plato especially talked about forms, okay? Forms. And the, the simplest way to describe this is that, that a form, every, every being has a form that it is evolving toward. Now, I'm not talking about the theory of evolution. I'm talking about an acorn, its form is an oak tree, Right? Ultimately, acorn reaches its perfection in a full-grown oak tree. Okay? What we would say as Christians is that the final form of a Christian is one who's perfected that has finally ended up like Jesus. Jesus is our form. So where, where Anselm goes is he says, okay, so... If we can conceive of a perfect form, maybe there's a form even more perfect than that. What is the ultimate perfect form? He would say God. We know God exists because we can conceive of the form of God. That sounds a little bit far-fetched maybe. But you know, later philosophers, non-Christian philosophers, use that train of thought. For instance, you may have heard of Rene Descartes or his philosophy, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Descartes uses Anselm, who uses Augustine, who used Plato to come to that understanding of this form if you like the technical terms, it's called the ontological uh, um, evidence for the existence of God. But it's important to know. Not only did non-Christian philosophers use it, but Christian theologians. For instance, John Wesley. John Wesley, who's the founder of the Methodist Church, it's the person who has the most influence on my theology. John Wesley would say that, that as Christians... He would call it the doctrine of Christian perfection. We are moving on to become more like Christ, to become perfect, like Christ is perfect. So that, that doctrine of the existence of God is so fundamentally important to how we understand God. Another, another thing that he worked on, two others, uh, he actually seeks to answer the question, why did God become man? 
Jesus Christ. And he develops two um, uh, theories in, within that to answer the question. One is the satisfaction theory of redemption or the satisfaction theory of atonement, whichever word you prefer to use. And, and to, again, to try to make this as simple as I can, um, uh, it goes like this. As humans, we are finite. And if we can conceive of this perfect being, that which is God, that must be infinite, right? Well, if this infinite, if this finite being has offended the infinite, we call that sin. If the finite being has offended the infinite, it's going to make sense in the prayer, trust me. How do we pay it back? How do we make recompense for the way we've offended God, the way we have sinned? Well, nothing we can do, no way we can pay God back. Let's face it, God already owns it all. How can we pay God back? Even our devotion won't do enough to pay God back. In order to pay God back, there must be somebody on the God level that can deliver the payment. Hence, Jesus Christ, the God-human. And one of the things that we say, you know, most of you probably hear it about Easter time, is Jesus died for my sins. That's what we're talking about. Jesus died to satisfy what I owe to an infinite God as this finite being has sinned. His death pays the price. That was one of the other thoughts that, 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 uh, um, that Anselm developed. And then the final one that I want to refer to is the ethical activity of God. And this simply states, God could do it, it was appropriate, therefore he did it. And what he means by that is, if we have this ultimate perfect God... That ultimate perfect God would be good. Whatever the perfection of goodness is, that would be God. If this ultimate perfect good God could do something in our favor, God would do something in our favor. Therefore, God did. Going back to that theory of atonement or, or redemption, the satisfaction theory, if God could provide a way for us to get closer to him, God would, and he did, and that's Jesus Christ. You didn't know you were coming for a deep philosophy lesson. I get that. But it is important to recognize that the way we think is not the same as the way John Wesley thought in the 1700s, and Anselm thought, well, in between Wesley and Anselm is, is Calvin and, and, and Luther, to whom we pay a lot of homage for, for our thought uh, process, and then before him is Anselm, and, and, and all those before him, Augustine, and even those Greek philosophers like Plato. We think because they thought before us. Anselm gives us this great body of language and thought process for us to be able to understand who God is and how God has acted in the world, acted in the world. So with that in mind, let's take a look at that prayer. Would you pull it out? 
If you have, it's, it was an insert in your bulletin. And I, I just want to talk through it first and try to apply what I've just spoken about. How Anselm is using his deep belief to pray a prayer. Isn't it good to, to think through the prayers we're praying? I mean, it's okay to do free association in your prayers, but once in a while, you got to tell God what you're thinking. And the other thing I think that we should, we should derive from this is there is no separation between our minds and our souls. When Jesus saved your soul, he didn't ask you to check your brain at the door. There should be no separation between our thoughts and our souls. So here's what he prays. Oh, Lord, my God, teach my heart this day. Now, think about that. Here is one of the most brilliant people of his day asking to be taught, striving to learn. And what does he want to learn? Well, where and how to find God. Where and how to find you. If this infinite, perfect being doesn't want to be known, we won't know. But we believe this infinite, perfect being wants to be known and therefore shares itself, himself, God's self with us. And we can come to know God because God reveals himself to us. You have made me and remade me. Remember what the Bible says about when we come to Christ, for the, anyone who comes to Christ, there is a new creation God remakes who we are because we weren't who God wanted us to be before we came to Christ. And when we come to Christ, we have the opportunity to turn ourselves over to allow God to remake us. You have made me and remade me. And you have bestowed on me all the good things I possess. Because if God is perfectly good, wouldn't a good God give us the goodness of our life? The Bible tells us that all good things come from God. And still, I do not know you. Why would he say that except for the next line? I have not yet done that for which I was made. I love that line. I have not yet done that for which I was made. The idea of the acorn that becomes the oak tree, the Christian that becomes like Christ. I have not yet become what you originally created me to become. Now, here's Anselm praying this prayer after he's given us this incredible theology, and yet he prays a prayer saying, Lord, I'm not yet who you need me to be. I would imagine the people around Bishop Anselm would say, yeah, you're pretty close. But he says, I'm not yet who you made me to be. And I think it's important for all of us to pray that, Lord, I'm, you're not done with me yet. I know that. I'm not, I haven't given myself fully over to you, Lord. And, and, and I, I, so I, I haven't become as much like Christ as you need me to be. And becoming like Christ is not just a, a thought process, but it's an ethical process where we enter into the world as Christ enters into the world. It is what we do with our hands and feet, with our lips, as we speak to others. I'm not yet who you want me to be. Teach me to seek you, for I cannot seek you unless you teach me or find you unless you show yourself to me. The infinite cannot be known unless the infinite wants to be known. And then this concluding part, let me seek you in my desire. 
Let me desire you in my seeking. Let me find you by loving you. Let me love you when I find you. Anselm borrows from uh, Augustine when he emphasizes the idea of faith seeking understanding. This deep trust in God wants a deeper intellectual understanding of who God is and how God works in the world. So Anselm gives us this, this great way to understand that we, we could combine both. The mental pursuit with the spiritual pursuit. They're not intended to be separate. So with that in mind, I want you to, to pray this prayer with me. I, I, I encourage you, and we've done this each week, I encourage you to take that prayer home, put it on your mirror um, or put it on your breakfast table, pray that prayer at least once a day throughout the week. And see if that doesn't help you in your own faith growth, your own becoming from the acorn to the oak, from who you are to who God created you to be. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, my God, teach my heart this day where and how to find you. You have made me and remade me, and you have bestowed on me all the good things I possess, and still I do not know you. I have not yet done that for which I was made. Teach me to seek you, for I cannot seek you unless you teach me, or find you unless you show yourself to me. Let me seek you in my desire. Let me desire you in my seeking. Let me find you by loving you. Let me love you when I find you. Amen and amen.